0: So if I was going to ask you, are you a proud person or are you a humble person? How would you answer that? Or would would it be better to put it on a scale of one to 10, uh, 1 being you're 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 a humble person, ten being you're a pretty proud person? What would you where would you put yourself on that scale? And um, maybe uh, you should ask yourself where would somebody Maybe who's with you tonight, or somebody that, if you ask that question, a friend or family member, would there, would their would they place you in a different place on that scale than you might place yourself? And does that say something about yourself too? <laughs> Just asking. Um, the question we want to talk about and kind of address uh, this weekend is this. Um, what does it mean when you you start out and you, you you're fairly a fairly humble person but you become proud? Because the person we're going to look at this weekend does exactly that. His name is Achan. And he's uh, one of the judges and these judges are really kind of hard to understand. They're found in the book of Judges and they're kind of like regional rulers, kind of mini kings. They're there raised up for a purpose to uh, serve God for a reason. And they're, they're kind of hard to kind of put, uh, put a finger on about exactly who they are and what they do and why they're chosen. You know, when you read the book of Judges itself, it's not kind of one of those inspirational books where you go, wow, that was really inspiring. You kind of walk away from some of the stories and go, what am I supposed to get out of this? There's some weird stuff going on in this book. And... uh <laughs> We're going to see that with Gideon; uh, he's a perfect example. Uh, but we want to look at uh, Gideon, and what we're doing is in this series is we're looking at faith. Because the interesting thing is that Gideon is mentioned in the Book of Hebrews, chapter eleven. In the and chapter eleven is the heroes of the faith, and he's one of those guys. You go, wouldn't have put him there, but he's there. And so we're going to talk a little bit about Gideon and say, okay, what is it about Gideon? And his faith that was big enough for the writer of Hebrews to say he needs to be in there and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Well, we're going to look at that. So let me give you a little background of book of Josh uh book of Joshua. Um you know, why Joshua? Because Joshua kind of lays the groundwork for judges. Now think of Joshua as Israel having a fairly strong leader. Uh General Joshua is leading the nation of Israel into the promised land. And uh, basically, that's what the book of Judges is all about, how Israel takes the promised land that was promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God says, Abraham, you're going to have land. And Joshua is the one that's going to do it. Moses has passed off the scene. Now Joshua's taken over. So you see, basically what you see is you see Israel uh, coming into the land, taking cities of Ai, Jericho. We talked about Jericho last week and then the south, and then the north, and the lands dis- distributed among all, the 12 tribes. So that's essentially what the book of Joshua is about. And uh, when we think of uh, Joshua, that's what's going on. But now we come to a place of the book of Judges. So Joshua is now passed to the side. And there's not really, and you, you know, he's in the first couple chapters. But essentially, now we have this kind of interim time before they have a king, uh, King Saul. And... They have these judges, and every one of them is a little different, and they're kind of strange people. We're going to talk about a couple of them in the next couple of weeks. But what goes on is Israel is constantly being harassed by the people of the land. They were told by God that they were to go and totally cast the the people living in the land of Canaan completely out of the land, but they didn't do that. So the Midianites that we're going to look at this weekend, they're in the land and they're constantly harassing the, the Hebrew people. And so they uh, they look for a deliverer and God does it. Now, what's going on here? Why did God want that to happen? Because he didn't want them to worship the gods of the land. So he wanted them to clean the land out and, and have him be the one they worship because he is the God of God and Lord of Lords. Right. But they didn't do that. So they're being harassed. Um, it was a time of real spiritual pluralism. There were a lot of gods in the land. There was a lot of, of things to worship, a lot of gods to worship. There was the god of the harvest, the god of the sun, the god of the moon, the god of the stars. You know, all these gods that they worship. And so um, they were daily forced, the people of Israel were daily forced to choose between obediently worshipping God or the gods of the land. And you know what happens, they began to worship, Not they, they didn't say, well we won't worship God, it wasn't one or the other, they began to worship both And So they would worship God, and, but they would also worship the gods of the land. Because what it came down to in that day, the mindset of the people in that day is they had their gods kind of regionally. They had the, the, the God that was over all things, and then they had the regional God, and then they had the local gods. And so, you know, the question was, and this is going to kind of ha- kind of happen with Gideon. Gideon's going to basically say, which God are you? I mean, that's essentially what we're going to find out in a minute. Um, but, you know, that their culture is not much different than the culture we live in. We live in a pluralistic society, which means that people believe a lot of different things about God, about who we are, about our role here on this planet. About the future, about where we came from—all those things. There's, there's, you could, if you began to write the different views, you could fill book after book after book. And so it's not much different than where we are. One of the key verses of of Judges is this one. Let me read it to you. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, doesn't that fit America? Everyone does as they see fit. And that's one of the things, you know, I can do whatever I want. It's my life. Don't tell me what to do. And that was the way it was in the day of Judges. So there's this, there's this, what they call the cycle of the Judges. And and what they mean by that is, when they have a judge, there's this, there's a certain cycle that goes. And let me, let me tell you the different parts of the cycle. And then we'll jump into the book of Judges. So what would happen is the people would rebel against God in their idolatry and unbelief. (coughs) So God would basically say, "Okay, I have to bring them back. So he would raise up in this case this weekend, the Midianites. And as you read the first part of of, uh, the story of Gideon, the Midianites are just they're just pounding the, the Israelites. They're just pounding them relentlessly. And so uh, God is bringing judgment through a foreign uh, oppression, and that's the Midianites. The people cried out to God for help. They cried out for God, and God would send a deliverer, a judge. And in this case, this weekend, Gideon. And Gideon was one of those guys, why me? Who, you know, why would you choose me? I mean, that's essentially what it's going to come down to. So what would happen is the cycle would go on, and the people would repent, they would turn back to God but after a while they'd fall back into their idolatrous sin and the cycle would start over again but here's the thing so the people would 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 fall into idolatry and then God would raise up some a foreign uh, power to oppress them they would cry out to God God would raise up a judge a deliverer the deliverer would set them free they would go back to their old ways and that cycle went over and over and over and and you know it was it was a uh, Think of it as, uh, not like a, the pattern wasn't, equal, you know, just didn't stay the same. As you read the beginning of the book of Judges, it's pretty bad. When you get to the end of it, it is really, really bad. I mean, it's a, spiritually speaking, it's one of the lowest times of the nation of Israel. Really low, bad time. Because it was a downward spiral. And that's kind of what was going on. Now, the principle I want you to see is this, and this is, Kind of important to understand. Many times God would use foreign nations to punish his people. When they weren't walking with him, he would bring, he would raise, and you're going to see that, you're going to see the Midianites, you can see that all the way through the book of of, uh, (coughs) Judges. But uh, one nation that God raised up was the Babylonians. God raised up the Babylonians and took them into captivity for 70 years. They lived in captivity for 70 years because they failed to walk with God. So God used a wicked nation, Babylon, to punish his people for 70 years. They were in captivity. The other thing you need to understand is God sometimes used his people to judge the people of the land. So in this case, they came into the land of Canaan and they judged the land. It wasn't that Israel was more moral or better people necessarily than the Canaanites. It's just that God chose to use his people to judge Israel. And so you see that in Joshua, and you see that in Judges. Now, why do I go to the trouble of pointing that out? Because there are people who read, Christian people who read the book of Judges, and they read the book of Joshua, and they say, that's really just a holy war. All that's going on here is it's a holy war. You, you, are, you say there should be no holy wars today, but look, we can find in Joshua and Judges where there's just a holy war going on, and you condemn us. We could show you in the Bible where you're doing the same thing. And so how do you answer that? Well, I don't, I don't have time to answer it this weekend, but I'll tell you what. If you go to the block, I kind of give an explanation for how, you know, you can answer that. But it, it's a problem for some people. They say, well, how can you allow that? How can, how can God allow the, this plundering of people? Uh, and some would say innocent people. They're not innocent, but they would say that to make a case. And, and I would just, I would direct you to the website and I would direct you to the blog because I talk about what about the Canaanite people? What about the Canaanite people? So that article will be, uh, the blog will be up on uh, Monday to talk about. We don't have time to go into it now. But I want to just give you a context of the book of Judges before we jump in so you understand what's going on. Joshua, they're taking the land. Judges, they're just being harassed by the power, by the nations around them in the land of Canaan. And uh, God is raising up a judge from time to time. And, you know, you see the cycle of judges. So we're going to kind of walk through that cycle with uh, Gideon. All right. So turn in your Bibles to page. If you don't have a Bible, we have these chair Bibles. They're very they're very new and they're very nice. Uh, page 194 and it's Judges chapter six, one through ten. I'm going to read that and then you kind of get a flavor in some of this. What I was talking about, maybe it'll come together. But I wanted to give you the overall context before we jumped in. Uh, Judges chapter 6, verse 1. This is page 194. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And, seven, and for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. There's God judging his people because they did evil, right? Because of the power of the Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves <coughs> in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites... Uh, Malachites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the eastern peoples, uh, excuse me, they camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or or their camels. They invaded the land and ravaged it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you the land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But notice the last phrase there. But you have not listened to me. He says, I gave you clear directions on what to do, but you did not listen to me. Now, here's the point I want you to see here for a moment. There is a difference between regret and repentance. And much of what we see in the book of Judges is regret, not Repentance. Now, God is sending, is seeking to convict his people of their sin. Um, you would we think, well, aren't they repenting here? The verses 6 and 7 look like they're repenting, but they're not. They're regretting it. Uh, verses 6 and 7, crying out was not a sign of repentance. He says this, he says, I delivered you in the Essentially what he's saying in this passage is I delivered you in the past, but you have not listened to me. You have not listened to me. You essentially what he said is you have truly you haven't truly repented. Um here's the point. Regret or what we what the Bible calls worldly sorrow, sorrow does not produce any real change. Repentance or godly sorrow does. Why? What is regret? Regret is I'm sorry that I'm caught in the consequences of my actions. Regret is uh I I I I I um I'm sorry. I'm not sorry for the sin. But I'm sorry for getting caught. I'm sorry for what it means now. I'm sorry that I have to go through this. Uh, we're not sorry enough to repent, to stop doing what caused the sin. Uh, there's an old saying, and maybe you've heard it. Sorry is as sorry does. Sorry is as sorry does. What does that mean? That means if you're sorry, then stop doing it. But if you keep doing it, you're not sorry for doing it. And the, the point is, there's a difference between regret and repentance. Now, that has an incredible implication for us. Regret is all about us. It mean, It's asking us, how am I being hurt? How is it affecting me? How is my life ruined? Repentance is all about God. Repentance is how has my sin grieved Him? How have I trampled on His uh, repeated saving actions in my life? How have I grieved his heart with my actions? There's a difference. The people were regretful, but they weren't repentant. Regret only looks horizontally. It only looks at how is it affecting my life here and now. Repentance says, how does this affect my relationship with God? You know, you have friends and neighbors and family members that have done things to you or you've done things to them. And you have... You know, you have come to a place, you say, well, how do I know if I can trust them? How do I know? They may be saying, how do I know if I can trust you? And what are they asking? They're really asking this question. Are you just regretting the consequences of what is happening to you? And you'll say and do anything so you can get out of this? Or are you truly repentant to the point that you say, you know what? I've hurt you, but I've sinned against God. You know, that's David. David, when he was caught in his sin, what did he say? You know, I, 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 I've sinned not just against you. I've sinned against God. And there's that 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 air of repentance. Uh, this is the way Paul puts it. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly so- sorrow brings death. You see, when you truly repent, you don't regret. You take the consequences of what your actions caused and say, I deserved it. It's like the it's almost like the criminal on the cross, right? He says, We deserve to be here. We sinned. He didn't. And so at that point, he's saying that's a sign of repentance. He's saying, We deserve to be to, to be here. He doesn't. So that's an important thing. Because sometimes You think, well, I'm sorry for this. Well, why are you sorry for it? You're sorry because it didn't work out well for you? You're sorry because everybody's mad at you? You're sorry because it didn't play out the way you intended it to be? You're sorry you got caught? That's not repentance. Repentance is, I am so overwhelmed by this, not only at how it affected you, but how it affected my relationship with God, that I never want this to happen again. See, the whole book of Judges is about people who are regretful, but they're not repentant. And there's a big difference. We could spend a lot of time talking about it, but we don't have it. But let's move on. How are we to understand Gideon's fleece? One of the, one of the most interesting things about this whole story is Gideon's fleece, right? And if you don't know the story, well, we're going to talk about it. Go to uh, chapter 6 verse 36. So God's picks, he called, and you can read through the story. It's three chapters. And, uh, Basically, what God does is he comes to Gideon and he says, you're going to be my warrior king judge and you're going to be you're going to lead Israel against these these uh, these Midianites. You are going to do it. (coughs) Gideon like you got the wrong person here. And so he wants to be sure. And he does the fleece thing. So uh, Judges 636 Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you promised, look I will place wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that was what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Okay, so you think, okay. But, you know, most of you that know science would say, well, that was... Generally, what should have happened, right? Gideon goes another step and he says this. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me just make, uh, let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time (coughs) make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That that night God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. So it's exactly the opposite. It's like a scientific experiment, right? So there's two ways to take this whole Gideon. So people take the Gideon story in two ways. The first one is they condemn it. And he basically said, you should never, ever do this. This is wrong. Because people go here and say, well, if you don't know what to do, you, you throw the fleece out. You know, Gideon fleece. And you say, God, if you want me to do this, you know. And, and others say, uh, no, that's actually a pretty good way to do it. I've done it many times and God has kind of directed my life that way. So what do you do? Um, because the fleece is, <coughs> it's kind of like this. God, if you want me to take this, uh, take this job. Um, have them call me in the next hour. Or you, you may maybe this one is more seasonal. God, if you don't want me to eat that last piece of pumpkin pie, have somebody else eat it in the next ten minutes. Make that five. Right? Right? And, and, and so you, you say, well, it's still here. The fleece has answered my question. Right? Um, but here's the thing. We need to be careful when we're looking for God's leading. Sometimes God has clearly shown us what what we're to do. I mean, Gideon knows what God wants him to do, but he has an issue with that, and we need to be careful. Um, It may be that we just we just don't want to do what we know we we need to do, and uh, remember the temptation of Jesus. Satan comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter four, and let me read you a couple of verses there. This is on page 785. Then the devil took Jesus, him, to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to a test. Well, that seems like a pretty clear directive that we shouldn't be doing the Gideon fleece, right? Now, let me let me tell you what I think Gideon's doing here. Remember, I, I told you at the beginning of the message that there's a hierarchy of gods going on here. Remember that, that uh, Israel, coming out of Egypt and living in a land that was pluralistic, had a lot of gods. There was the God of fertility, Baal. There was the, the, the God of, uh, you know, there's all these different gods. So there's a point where when Gideon is doing this, I think what he's doing here is, I think he's trying to understand, who is this God that's talking to me? Who is this God who's communicating to me? I think he's asking God to show him who he was. Um, I think he's asking him to say, are you one of the forces of nature? One of those gods that we pray to, uh, that we offer sacrifices to, are you like the other gods of the land? But what God was trying to show, uh, and and he never condemned Gideon for this, what God finally did, he's saying, I am the God of gods. I am the God that can change scientific, uh, you know, when you do a scientific, I can change that. I I could do that. so, I don't think Gideon was looking for a little sign to help him make a decision. He was seeking to understand the very nature of God. Gideon's request, I believe, was for help to build his faith. And God, in his grace, responded twice. Now, is this, does, this mean, <coughs> does this mean that we should use the fleece today? And the answer is, I don't probably think so. Because I, don't, I think this is a specific Thing where Gideon was trying to understand who God is, and God graciously is revealing himself to Gideon through this. Uh, Gideon, though, demonstrates his faith um, as he, little by little, becomes a great deliverer of his people. So his faith is pretty little here, and he's going to, In the next step is kind of really interesting. The, the judges, i give you this. As you read through the book of Judges, you will be entertained. I mean, it is very... Interesting reading when you read the stories of Gideon and Samson and some of these other judges. But um, the question is, Gideon began very humble. He began trusting God. And then the wheels came off. And jump down to Judges chapter 7, page 196. Uh, Judges chapter 7 verse 1 Early in the morning Jerub Jer- Jer- Baal that is Gideon that's another name he had and all of his men camped at the spring of Har- Harad The camp of the Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Mora They uh, the Lord said to Gideon you have too many men I cannot deliver Midian into your into their hands or Israel will boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave uh, Mount Gilead. (coughs) Now, it's interesting to me. What God is saying is, I can't have this big of an army because if I have this big of an army, they'll brag, it was our power, not God, that gave us the victory. And so I'm going to, make it a little bit harder so it has to be a little bit more of me so it will be clearer that it's me. That's what he's doing here. Now, notice what's going on. So then uh, 22,000 men left while with 10,000, with, well, 10,000 remain. Now, whether these numbers are skewed or not is irrelevant. What we need to see is that what God is doing is he's trying to teach the armies and the nation of Israel and Gideon, that it's not your power and it's not your strength that's going to give you the victory. That's the point. Okay? And then God says, so now you, you've lost a big part of your army. But it go, he goes on. But the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water. And I will thin them out for you. There. If I say the one... uh Uh, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, This one shall not (coughs) go with you, he shall not go. Now, it's very interesting. How he divides them is when he takes them down to the river to take a drink, he watches how they drink water. And some of them just put their face down and drank, and some of them cupped it up and lapped it to their mouths. And so the ones that cupped it up and brought it to their mouths, he took. And there were three hundred. Now, if we go by the numbers that we have here in Scripture, that means what God essentially did here is He whittled the army down uh, about 99% from what it was at the beginning. Now, what's interesting as you read through the text is you never see Gideon saying, hey, hey, time out, hold on, wait a minute. You You never see him wavering in his faith. He's trusting God. I mean, You you basically don't see him debating God at all here. And if there is ever a time if you are Gideon and God is chopping your army down, I mean, like not just chopping it down, like, I mean, severely chopping it down. Wouldn't you at this point say, God, I don't know. I mean, I liked it better when we had a lot rather than just 300. Uh, But you see what God is doing. God is taking any. Any conceivable person would have to say, after the victory, this was God's doing. It had nothing to do with the soldiers of the army. And as you read through the battle and how it took place, you realize that that was the case. The point is, he began walking by faith, trusting God, not an army. So he had this tremendous faith at the beginning of his life. He had this faith where they walked with God and he trusted God and God and he shows that. That's why he's in Hebrews 11, because he's humbly trusting the power of God. So before Gideon went into battle, God whittled his army down in half and then only to 300. And according to the numbers given, it was about ninety nine percent less. At this point, Gideon seems to be trusting God not the size of the army. That's the key point I want you to see, and I think that's why he's in the book of Hebrews. So th- think about that for a minute. What's going on in your life that you just think is overwhelming and it's just too big for God? Because the story of Gideon basically says it's never, nothing's too good, n- nothing's too big for God. Nothing is overwhelming to God. And part of our problem is that we want this big army. We want all these assurances. We want all, and, and God says, would you just trust me can you just trust me through this? Do you have to have an army with you? Do you have to have all these other things? Do you have to have... And, 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 and so the, the, the great thing about Gideon is he never really questioned God when he was whittling the army down. He, he just was trusting him. Notice what it says. This is Hebrews 11. This is where Gideon is actually mentioned in Hebrews 11. And what I what more should I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon who through faith conquered kingdoms, whose weakness was turned into strength. That's what we're seeing here. His weakness was what? That he didn't have a big army, but that was turned into strength because he trusted God. Paul, remember the Apostle Paul? He had this weakness. We don't know what it was. And he asked God three times, please would you take it away? And three times God said no. He said, when you are weak, then you are strong. And Paul got that idea. And it goes on to say, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. If you read through the book of Gideon, he absolutely did that. He routed the Midianites. He routed them with an army of 300. But we soon forget the source of, he soon forgot the source of his strength. and, And the thing is, he became proud. And what is pride? Pride is thinking too much of yourself. And that's really what it comes down to. Gideon should have looked back and thought, this victory was God's and not mine. Uh, my only part was to trust and obey him. The glory in this victory is his. And the privilege is uh, is mine of even being part of it. Even being part of it. And God allowing me to be part of it is, is a privilege. And, and that's, not what, that's not the way he responded. Instead, he became proud. Look at uh, chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 22. Let me pick it up and then we'll tie this all together about what happened and how the wheels came off. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That sounds good, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your uh, share of the plunder. It was the cu- custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we will, we will be glad to give them. So they, they spread out a garment and each threw a ring from his plunder onto it, the weight of the gold rings. Uh, he asked, "Who came to seven, uh, 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants. The purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on the camels' necks. Gideon made the gold uh, into an ephod, ephod um, which he placed in Ophrah. Uh, his town, all Israel, uh, prostituted themselves by worshipping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Well, what's going on here? His actions. He said, well, God is, God is your king. God is the victor. But... He, he goes on to say, but give me, give me some gold. And he makes this ephod. And what is this? The, the people wanted to make him king, and he says no. But he, he makes this ephod. What is it? The ephod was worn by the high priest in the tabernacle or the tent where God was present among his people, which at the time was located in Shiloh. So the tabernacle was loaded, located in Shiloh. And so he wants an ephod. Uh, and what was the ephod used for? The ephod was used to determine the will of God. So what Gideon wanted was people to come to him, not to go to the high priest to get the will of God. He was essentially uh, setting up a, a, a different place, uh, essentially was setting up a hometown as a rival place of worship. He wanted people to come to him, not to the high priest what the, the God had set up um, So Gideon began as a a fearful field worker, but soon became a proud and vindictive would-be king. He forgot his humble roots. He forgot who had given him the victory. He forgot the source of his strength. That's what Gideon did. You know, Jesus gave up his rights to be a king. Gideon said, I don't want to be a king, but he he took on the, the actions and the attitude of a king. Unlike Gideon, Jesus had every right to demand honor of the honor of the king. But uh, Jesus didn't claim it. He gave it up. Unlike Gideon, Jesus is the high priest, the only one who is able and deserving to show us the father. Gideon tried to take on the power of the high priest. Unlike Gideon, Jesus resisted the temptation to rule uh, in power over the nations when he was tempted by Satan Satan said I'll give you all of these and Jesus turned it down unlike Gideon Jesus did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many Mark ten forty-five. unlike Gideon Jesus gave up his power and position of honor to set us free from sin and death by giving his life on a cross he humbled himself to the point of death on a criminal's cross So we have much to learn from Gideon. He began well with faith, humble, but he grew proud. We have a lesson about having regrets or having repentance. We have an example of Jesus who is the King of Kings and humbled himself to become a servant of all. So we have the example of and the power of Jesus who has set us free. The presence of the Holy Spirit. So that when we come to that place where the enemy comes and says, demand your rights. Don't trust God. Get an army. And we say, no. I'm going to trust God. I'm willing to take the, uh, the verbal and whatever abuse that may come. I'm willing to give up my rights. I'm willing to humble myself for the sake of others coming to know Christ. Where are you at? We began with a question. Are you, do you consider yourself humble or proud? And why are you humble? And why are you proud? And how do you move to true biblical humility? It seems to me that Jesus gave us the example and it's becoming a servant of all. Jesus said, when there's a banquet, don't seat yourself at the place of honor. Seat yourself in the cheap seats and let the host of the banquet bring you forward. Live your life that way. It'll make a difference for Christ. Stand with me. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for the life of Gideon, Thank you more for the life of Christ who shows us what true leaders do. Thank you that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that he got off of his throne as the king of kings and lord of lords and took the position of a lowly baby in a manger, but also as a dying would-be criminal on a cross as viewed by the people that were there that day. He was willing to give up his reputation. He was willing to give up his royalty. He was willing to give it all up so that he could set us free. May that always break our hearts again and again and again. May it be a humbling force in our lives and may it turn us into Examples, living examples of our Savior Jesus Christ as we are servants like he has served us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.